welcome to episode 1338 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. We're doing another team preview podcast today, so very shortly, we will be welcoming on Tim Britton of The Athletic to talk to us about the Mets. And then we will be talking to Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet about the Blue Jays. Before we get to that, there's one thing I meant to follow up on from last week that we didn't have time to talk about yesterday because of the Machado madness. But we had talked about the theory or the hypothesis that players were signing extensions at an increased rate because of fears of free agency. And you said you were going to do some follow-up research about that, and you did, and you published some of it. And maybe we were a little too hasty in declaring that an apparent trend. Yeah, I think it is a trend that we are likely to see developing, maybe in the same way we're talking about, you know, the revenue split going to players that maybe we don't see anything meaningful yet, but we could see it continue to split. Anyway, I I was able to use the MLB Trade Rumors extension tracker to go back about 10 or 11 years and look for players signing extensions that buy out free agent years before they hit their sixth year of service time. And what I saw is that those, by and large, those extensions are actually down. They're reduced from where they were even five years ago. And last year, there were only 11 of them, I believe, that I could find. And so far this year, we've seen, what, five? Five of them, including four in the span of a week, and also Whit Merrifield. But, you know, we haven't seen anything since Luis Severino on Friday. Now, granted, that's only a few days ago, but... Nevertheless, I think it is. it makes all the sense in the world that this is a trend we could see developing and players would be more open to it. But at the same time, until we actually have the data, seems like players used to be more in favor of signing these extensions. And, and I, wonder, I wonder if part of it is that those, these extensions used to be so team-friendly and they were written up as being so team-friendly. I wonder if that kind of shook the market, shook the agents a little bit in in the direction of discouraging players from signing those extensions. And if teams weren't going to be able to get the same team-friendly extensions that they used to, maybe the teams would be less willing to engage and and find an agreement. So there's there's a lot more to this, I think, than just the idea that, oh, free agency is scary now, so players are going to sign it away. So I think it's something to watch. But yeah, in in the early going, we don't see evidence of the actual trend that we have talked about in theory. Yeah, I'm glad you actually checked on that because it is very easy for us to say, well, this seems like it should be true. And here are a couple data points that seem to suggest that it's happening. And so therefore, it's something that's happening. And that is kind of dangerous at times because there have been multiple waves of extensions. I mean, there were the Indians signing lots of players to extensions and being innovative in that area in the 90s. And then on and on, this has been going on for forever. For The Rays have done this many times. Every team has done it. It started out as a small market thing, and then big market teams caught on, and they started doing it too. And now everyone does it. And so maybe that was a a slight exaggeration to say that there's more of it happening, but perhaps it will continue to happen at an elevated pace in the future. We'll see. It just depends so much on free agency and economics and the CBA and all these ongoing conversations we're having. But good reminder just in general, because I think we're all so hungry to pick up on trends so that we will have something to talk about and something to write about and something to sound smart about. And it can be very seductive to just pick out a couple examples that appear to point to a trend and then kind of craft it into that narrative when it's not necessarily. And you need that historical perspective. Can I uh, can I change the topic here for a second? Because something sure. has come to my awareness that I guess you you mentioned you were aware of, but I didn't know until today. So you remember the film Million Dollar Arm came mm-hmm. out? It's a film based on a true story 
about Dinesh Patel and Rinku Singh, cricket players who won a contest to sign a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates and learn to pitch. You uh, you might remember that. That happened, uh, I believe it was about 10 years ago, something thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I uh, I remember liking to look at their baseball reference pages, seeing how Patel and, and Singh were doing, and, and they did make some progress. But Patel wound up being released in December of 2010. He went home, finished school. He is uh, He's taught baseball in Delhi. And in 2011, he helped his village boys prepare for the second season of the Million Dollar Arm Talent Hunt for about two months. Anyway, I didn't know what had gone on with Rinku Singh. Singh was a little more successful in his professional baseball career, but ultimately he wound up needing Tommy John surgery. Then he missed all of the 2015 season due to a broken elbow. He was re-signed by the Pirates in early November of 2015. He made one appearance in the GCL, pitching one scoreless inning in 2016, but his baseball career ended. Here's the part that I I didn't know, and maybe maybe this is already common knowledge, but in any case, if you go to Rinku Singh's Wikipedia page, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read some sections here. There's there's the intro, there's the early life section, there's the professional baseball career section, and then there is the professional wrestling career section. <laughs> on January 13th of 2018, Singh signed a contract with WWE. On May 31st, 2018, he made his in-ring debut at an NXT live event in Tampa in a loss to Cassius Ono. I don't know who that is. I don't know anything about wrestling. If I knew anything about wrestling, I probably would have known that Riku Singh is a wrestler now. But in any <laughs> case, that's what's happened. Million Dollar yeah. Harm. Able to find a successful wrestler among a number of young cricket players yeah his life has taken yet another interesting turn so he's in nxt which is kind of like the wwe minor leagues and he was apparently in pirates camp just this week because pirates prospects had a post about him and had a little interview with him about his wrestling career and sounds like he's wrestling on a weekly basis i don't know whether he's a better wrestler than he was a baseball player but he's pursuing that for now i guess that's a more material for a a movie sequel but imagine that is a a very uncommon progression of sports and and professions that he has followed i have nothing else to add on the subject i was a little bit expecting when we recorded this on tuesday i thought you know there's probably like a 40 percent chance we're just talking about bryce harper signing the same contract with some team tomorrow hasn't happened yet and having Mm -hmm. now checked the wires hasn't happened while we've been recording this so right now i gotta tell you i got nothing to say (laughs) I'll tell you one more thing about Rinku Singh from this interview. They asked him what his finishing move is, and he says, we're talking about the fastball million-dollar arm pitch. We're thinking about working on that with the left arm after the big, I can't say my move, but it's going to be a left-hand finisher. So you're incorporating the baseball past? Absolutely. In the wrestling world to introduce the baseball thing. It's a totally different audience, baseball versus wrestling. That's a way to introduce the million-dollar arm plus the Pittsburgh Pirates and the story behind it. So it sounds as if he is going to bring his baseball past into his uh, wrestling career and have a a baseball finisher. So he's going to be a baseball wrestler, which is wonderful. Here's something I don't understand. For uh, Okay. The, the Indian reality show that found Dinesh Patel and Riku Singh was called The Million Dollar Arm. The grand prize for winning the contest in the show was $100,000. It's not a million dollars. The show should have been called The $100,000 Arm, or the prize should have been a million dollars. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, maybe it was a million of some other kind of currency, and it's just the exchange rate. I don't know. But anyway, he'd be a good podcast guest. I will file away that possibility. One other thing that I just saw while we were talking, 
Someone asked Bob Nutting, the Pirates owner, basically about why he doesn't spend money on his baseball team. And uh, these are tweets from Bill Brink of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, because I think Nutting just had his uh, annual spring training meeting with reporters. Asked why payroll went down, Nutting said, we need to focus on the things we believe are controllable. Asked, is payroll not controllable? Nutting said, I think payroll scale and range broadly is not controllable. We're going to have certain resources that we have, and I think that's the reality of a marketplace. What do you think that means if we were to try to parse this probably meaningless statement? Is he just saying that, uh, I guess he's just saying that it's out of his hands and he just can't afford to spend more on payroll? That's what he means by payroll is not controllable because it seems like payroll is extremely controllable and that he is the one who controls it. I mean, I guess a loose, generous interpretation would be that you can't just increase payroll if you have a lot of young talent on the roster or something who are already signed to arb or or pre-arb contracts that payroll is necessarily going to be low you can look at i don't know the a's or the rays who just have good teams but they don't have a lot of players who are in position to make a lot of money and then if you decide well maybe the free agents out there aren't really good fits then what are you going to do you can't just there's no sense in inflating payroll just for the sake of inflating payroll if it doesn't make your team meaningfully better that is again a loose and generous interpretation. You know what one could have said is that the Pirates, much like, I don't know, a team like mm, the San Diego Padres could have signed <laughs> someone like Manny Machado because yeah. the Padres could do it. The Padres have already done it. They are, I guess, officially they're in the process of doing it. But in any case, you could make that argument because the Pirates have Colin Moran at third base, mm-hmm. who's fine, but he's not Manny Machado. Definitely not Manny Machado. Also, they don't have a really good draws up. So you could make that argument. There is a little bit of nuance, a little bit of gray area, like what what Rob Manfred said the other day that that caused a stir. Like there isn't a direct relationship between payroll and wins, and it isn't true that just because a team spends more, that means it's making more of an effort to win. Payroll and success are only loosely correlated. That being said, when you invest more, you are more likely to be successful. Any mm-hmm. team with a small budget, the front office would say, you know what, we'd probably be in better shape if we had a bigger budget. So. Yeah just seems like another nothing paragraph i was even by the time that you started reciting the quote i <laughs> i kind of drifted from attention because it was just so vague and yeah perp- and meaningless so in that sense right. maybe it was successful <laughs> yeah i think that owners and and some cases gms and baseball operations presidents they really have mastered the art of saying nothing about everything i mean not just payroll obviously they're constantly asked to comment about things that it's not in their interest to comment on whether it's transactions or their own players or whatever but particularly when it comes to payroll and spending they really have just gone above and beyond this winter in explaining themselves without actually explaining anything and bringing lots of business buzzwords into their responses so that you just immediately tune out and your eyes glaze over as soon as you see it. So good job by them to try to make us all too bored to actually care that they're probably being disingenuous in many cases. By the way, it seems like there was some sort of bonus round where it was possible for the winner of the million dollar arm to win a million dollars. I'm having trouble tracking (laughs) down all of the details. The actual winners won $100,000 a million dollars seems to have been possible to achieve, but I am unclear on exactly how it was achievable. 
Okay. Here's from historyvershollywood.com. First and last time I'll ever be on this website, there's a question. What was the monetary prize for winning the contest? Not only was the Million Dollar Arm contest winner awarded a trip to America for a Major League Baseball tryout, there was also a monetary prize of $100,000 and a bonus chance to win $1 million. Contest uh-huh. winner Rinku Singh didn't win the million. That's from the <laughs> New York Post. So what that has done is elucidate no details. Ah, here we go. Here we go. Here's the next one. Here's the next paragraph. I should have read this one and said, what were the rules of the million-dollar arm contest? Coming the land from Mumbai to Delhi, the million-dollar arm TV reality contest awarded a prize of $100,000 plus a Major League Baseball tryout to the pitcher who could throw the most strikes over 85 miles per hour out of 20 total pitches. The winner could take home $1 million if he could throw three consecutive strikes that were at least 90 miles per hour from MLB.com. There we go. So the (laughs) winner couldn't do it, but it was possible. It was possible. So I rescind my earlier criticism. It was not a terrible (laughs) name for the show. It was an accurate name for the show, but also uh, just very, very unlikely that anyone would get it. I believe that, uh, that Singh topped out at 87 miles per hour, which is still, for people who never played baseball, pretty good. All right, so we ask questions and then we answer them. So now it is time for us to ask more questions and have other people answer them. So we will be back after a short break to talk to Tim Britton about the New York Mets. In my car, in my car, I'm taking a ride to somewhere inside where you never left and I never cried. Somewhere inside Where you never left me And I never cried At the speed of light In my car All right, so we are joined now by Tim Britton, who covers the Mets for The Athletic and is speaking to us from his car, where it is less windy than it is outside in Port St. Lucie. Hey, Tim. I can't tell you the number of journalistic things I've done in my car, writing stories, waiting people out. Uh, So it's always nice to do to do a big interview in the car. Yeah, well, Sam used to record this podcast from the car for the first, I don't know how many hundreds of episodes. It's a good podcasting place. (laughs) It's a sound dampening environment. So I was just scanning your recent articles for The Athletic and very conveniently for me, a lot of them are already phrased in a question format. So instead of preparing my own questions, I can just crib questions from your headline writer or whoever wrote those headlines. So I'll start with this one because as we know, The Mets already robbed Russell Carlton from us and from the internet recently. So here's one. What can we learn about Brody Van Wagenen from the front office hires he's made? Yeah, so uh, I think that was a story that I focused on. Allard Baird and and Jared Banner, two guys he got uh, from the Red Sox in in November. And I I think one of the bigger ones, you you mentioned Russell Carlton, that's part of kind of a more analytical bend. Uh, They've also hired Adam Guttridge, who... Uh, had worked for the Rockies and the Brewers in the past and had his own, uh, had founded or co-founded uh, his own analytical company. I don't know what you call it, called mm-hmm. NAFI. Uh, after NAFI Perez, we discussed how the long tradition uh, of these things being named after <laughs> middle infielders who don't really hit very much. Right. So uh, I, I think it's interesting to see the investment the Mets have placed in their coaching staff. Uh, they've beefed up their analytical side a little bit. You know, they've the Athletic, we reported last year that they had three people in their analytics department compared to, say, the Yankees, who had 20. And that the, the Mets, you know, at the end of the season, Jeff Wilpon had said, we, we've provided all of the analytical people that they've ever asked for, uh, which my sources told me was not true. Uh, but at least so far this year, they have started to provide more on that side of things. And that, for 
you know, it, for an organization that, that isn't going to spend uh, as much as maybe it should, which we can debate later if you want, and, and isn't, you know, right up against the competitive balance tax or anything like that, to uh, ignore or neglect certain sides of, of kind of lower level investment like analytics is not a good look. It's looking like they're at least giving Van Wagen the tools to explore those areas more in depth than they did in the past. So when the Mets were in the process of hiring Van Wagen, and of course they wound up having three finalists for the GM position, there was Brody Van Wagenen, there was Heim Bloom, and there was Doug Melvin. And these were three candidates who had very different, let's say, strengths and, and potential weaknesses in going into the into the finalist interviews. So were the Mets at that point unclear exactly on the direction they wanted to go? Did they just want a representative from like the three different pillars of how you proceed in the baseball industry? Or what was the thought process to having three such different candidates at the, in the very last round of the interviews in the first place? Yeah, it was a, a weird dynamic that you get to that point and you're down to your finalists and there's such diverse schools of thought uh, that it seems like you haven't made even the preliminary decision about what you want your executive to be. I think I read that as they were kind of leaning toward Van Wagenen for a while. You know, he was a guy that they couldn't hire in season, for instance. Uh, so they couldn't talk to him until the end of the season. So they, they had kind of earlier conversations, at least like late September conversations with Doug Melvin, who was a guy who they could talk to about the job more at that point. And then he kind of wanted to check their boxes of different approaches, whether it was Melvin's generally old school thought process. We had talked to him about how he had had his first analytical mind be a, a peanut farmer in Georgia, I believe, who had written a book about analytics in, in the mid-90s. Heim Bloom, who obviously with the Rays is more new school, and then Van Wagenen, which is kind of uh, an approach that we haven't seen much in baseball uh, from the agency side. I, I think it, I think they kind of knew where they wanted to go with Van Wagenen, and they were ruling for someone else to talk them out of it, to, to blow them away, whether it was Melvin or Bloom, but, but that didn't happen. You know, I, I think at the time it didn't seem like they had much of a, an idea of what they wanted to do, but I, I think looking back now, uh, that they probably had more of a sense of it than we thought at the time. We could talk about whether the Mets should have done more, should have spent more. Right now, I think they're sitting at seventh in MLB in payroll. And even though maybe they could have invested in other areas, they were very busy. They did make trades. They did make signings. Is there any reason to think that Jeff Wilpon is not still pulling the strings? Has he pulled back a bit? Has Van Wagenen seized control in a way that Sandy Alderson wasn't able to? Or is he just more persuasive when it comes to getting mm-hmm. Wilpon to make moves? I mean, I think there's a part of that that persuasive ability. I mean, Wilpon and, and Van Wagenen had a very good relationship even before this. The Mets had uh, several of his clients and, and several CAA clients uh, on the roster. Uh, they negotiated bigger deals, the, the Cespedes deal in particular, the two of them. So I, I think they always had a good working relationship. Uh, and now that Van Wagenen comes in, uh, you know, I, I think the, the Mets have increased payroll a little bit. But, you know, a bigger move like the Cano trade is something that was generally payroll neutral because they were able to get some bigger contracts off their books in terms of Jay Bruce and Anthony Swarzak. Now, they had money later in the deal with the five years for Cano, uh, but the, they weren't really thinking that far down the line with it. So I, I think they've changed the approach a little bit. You know, I, I don't necessarily think Alderson was not empowered to do anything, but I think there were certain restrictions that ownership puts in place. Uh, in terms of payroll and, and what they want to spend and what kind of players they want to go after, uh, that there, there are some things that do get vetoed at a certain level. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it was a, a trade for Jason Kipnis uh, in the offseason. Uh, it probably has worked out that it was vetoed. But I, I think they've been probably a little bit more open to uh, Van Wagenen because he's new and different and brings kind of more creative ideas than they've had the last couple of years. 
and because of that prior working relationship that he had with Jeff Wilpon. So we could go kind of position by position down the Mets depth chart, but the what are the positions? One of the two positions I think that interests me the most is looking at center field. The Mets already had pre-existing Juan Lagares. They went out, they got Keon Broxton for a pretty cheap price from the Brewers. I'm a big Broxton fan. And then recently they've always also been talking about trying Jeff McNeil in center field because they have basically boxed McNeil out of the infield for the foreseeable future despite his strong debut. There are a lot of different ways this could go, but how how do you envision the Mets' center field position plays out this year? Do you think that whoever plays the most is someone they already have internally, or do you think that this is somewhere where they're just going to decide, you know what, come June or July, it's, we, we need to upgrade on, on what we already have because this isn't going to work? I, I had no idea you liked Keon Broxton, Jeff. I had not read any of those stories. <laughs> um, I think, you know, uh, right now, the guy who's probably in line to play the most in center field is someone you didn't mention, and that's Brandon Nimmo, who was their opening day center fielder last year, got a fair amount of time there in center. Late in the season, the last two months, they had kind of, you know, after Yoannis Cespedes was out for the year, the Mets kind of decided that they liked Nimmo in right field and Michael Conforto in left field more. So we saw a lot of Austin Jackson in center field at the end of the season. And then all offseason, they said that we wanted to keep those guys in the corners. And that, you know, they had Lagares coming back from his toe injury that cost him the last five months of the season. They went out and traded for Broxton. And then when they signed Jed Lowry, they talked about Jeff McNeil playing more in the outfield, which he did a little bit in college. He played center field his junior year, you know, 20 games or so. And he played right field, I think, 30 games his freshman year at Long Beach State. Uh, but he only played eight, he's only played eight professional games there in the, the six years since he was drafted. Uh, but they've talked about McNeil in left field, Conforto moving over to right and having Nimmo in center. Uh, it's a little strange to me that they've kind of pinballed back on this over the course of the offseason that, you know, when you ask them straight out, like, how do you most like Nimmo and Conforto? It's in the corners. Uh, and yet they're willing to make a defensive sacrifice now for the offensive game that they can have by having McNeil bat in the lineup. Mickey Calloway has talked about making defensive substitutions and having, you know, an outfield where you can have Broxton in left and Lagares in center and Conforto in right uh, late in games. Uh, I'm not sure how often they're going to do that, but I think against right-handed pitching, you know, like opening day against Max Scherzer in, in DC, it's probably going to be McNeil in left, Nimmo in center and Conforto in right. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the numbers aren't great for Nimmo and, and Conforto has played some center himself. Uh, but they're not untenable out there. And, and in terms of, of what makes most sense for this roster, that might be it as long as McNeil can show that he can handle left field competently, that, that the combination in the outfield doesn't ruin it too much, and it helps your lineup enough. I, I don't know. You know. I think they wanted to add a center fielder but didn't want to make the multi-year commitment to A.J. Pollock, considering that Cespedes was you know, due back at least late this season or next year uh, in the outfield. Uh, and they, there was really no other center fielder on the market that made sense to them. You alluded to Brody Van Wagenen's prior working relationship with Jeff Wilpon. That is not the only prior working relationship that Brody Van Wagenen has with a member of the Mets organization. And one other one is Jacob deGrom, who is his former client. And one of the biggest storylines hanging over the Mets this spring is his extension talks. And he has set sort of an opening day deadline or ultimatum. So this seemed like it was going to be one of the weirdest things about the Mets hiring Van Wagenen and all of these interrelated relationships and previous business knowledge has that been weird do we know whether it's been weird and what are the odds of working out something with DeGrom well I think what's been unexpected to this point uh, is that there haven't really been much there hasn't been much in the way of a negotiation there in terms of an extension for DeGrom when the Mets you know I think coming into the offseason when the Mets did not yet have a general manager 
I wondered, and I think a lot of people wondered, what direction the organization was going to take over the next few years if they thought they were capable of contending before DeGrom was a free agent after the 2020 season, or whether they you know, should rebuild. And we had talked about the, the possibility of trading him at the trade deadline in July. And then when they hire Van Wagenen, uh, and they make some of the uh, early offseason moves that they did in, in trading for Cano and Diaz from Seattle and signing Wilson Ramos, uh, they, they were very clearly all in on, on 2019 and, and kind of this window right now. Uh, and then it starts to make more sense to extend DeGrom and you, you've hired his agent. It seems like that would be uh, a pretty easy thing to do. Uh, Van Wagenen would presumably know about what it would take to extend DeGrom, what he wants in terms of years and, and average annual value. Uh, and yet here we are in mid to late February, uh, and there hasn't been a formal offer made. There, you, you can sense the, the tiniest bit of frustration from DeGrom's side that it, the, the Mets still haven't really started the conversation that much. Uh, and I think that's why we're hearing now that if it's not done by opening day, they don't want to talk about it in season. Uh, it's kind of a weird dynamic of, of leverage and urgency from the two sides because there are two years left. It's not a one-year thing. You know, A lot of times when we're having this conversation about a, an elite player in spring training about an extension, it's because he's entering his walk year, whereas DeGrom has two years left. Uh, his free agency would be complicated given his age as a late bloomer who's going to hit the market going into his age 33 season. Uh, so you don't want to extend, you know, I don't think the Mets want to give him a six-year deal or something like that. Uh, and then, you know, DeGrom from his side is, is arguing off of uh, a season where he had a 170 ERA and was, you know, the best pitcher in baseball by a fair margin. Uh, so it's it's a weird dynamic from the start. You throw in Van Wagenen's history with him. Uh, it seems like there's enough there for both sides to get something done eventually. But I was a lot more confident about that, you know, the day they hired Van Wagenen than I am right now. Staying with the Mets starting rotation, of course, it was DeGrom who had the big season last year. It was Zach Wheeler who had the incredible sub-two ERA second half. But then there's there's Noah Syndergaard just kind of hanging around. He only made seven starts due to injury in 2017. But last year he came out, he made 25 starts, spent a, had a couple trips on the injury list with a indexed finger strain, and then he had... Hand, foot, and mouth disease. Everyone remembers the chapter where Noah Syndergaard had hand, foot, and mouth disease. I believe there are a couple players who had that. Anyway, looking at Syndergaard, his numbers last season, they they were good. He had a basically a three ERA. He had strong peripherals, but I, I can't help but kind of look in the in the second half. And even though he was still effective down the stretch, his strikeouts started to disappear. He became a little more of a a soft contact pitcher. The stuff is still there. The repertoire is still there. He's still Noah Syndergaard. But what is what is the sense around Syndergaard? Is this what he is? Do you expect him to get more strikeouts moving forward? What is his focus in 2019 as as he looks to push the bets toward the playoffs? Yeah, it, it, you know, if I did not have access to baseball reference or, or fan graphs, and you asked me if I just watched Noah Syndergaard's season last year uh, and done the postgame interviews with him, uh, and talked to him over the course of the season, you asked me at the end of the year, what, what do I think his ERA was? I would have said like, oh, like 4-4 four, four or something. Uh, because just the, the conversation around him was how disappointing that season was. And, and he fueled it as much as anyone, talking about how he didn't feel quite himself uh, in terms, especially mechanics. He was trying to, to alter the way he delivered the ball. He felt like he was flying open too much, which um, you know made his fastball a little easier to pick up for guys, which is why he wasn't getting uh, not only strikeouts, but getting swing and miss on his fastball. You know, He's not a guy who's going to, pound the zone up the way we've seen a lot of other pitchers do, the way DeGrom did, for instance, last season uh, with that high fastball. Syndergaard's still a guy who's going to pound the zone low. Uh, guys are getting that pitch a little bit more easily than they did in the past. So it, it just didn't feel like anything close. It, it didn't feel like a three ERA season and certainly didn't feel like the kind of dominant performances that New York had gotten used to with Syndergaard in, in 2015 and 2016. So 
it'll be interesting to see when he, you know, the, the stuff is still there. Obviously the fastball is still 90, 98. The slider is still 93, 94. So it's just a matter of, can that work? You know, have, have hitters changed enough over the last few years? Uh, and is, are they used, are they accustomed enough to that kind of velocity now that it's not kind of the unicorn kind of repertoire that it seemed like it was in 2015? Uh, and how much does that affect him? Look, it, it's, We'd all love our, our bad, disappointing season to be a 3.02 ERA uh, in 25 starts, but I, I think the, the Mets. There is the idea that there's still something more in there, something you know, a, a 2.5 kind of thing that just feels more dominant than it did uh, this past season, where he just seemed a little bit more hittable. Uh, and you know, Syndergaard talked about trying to go up in the zone and trying to fix that mechanical issue. Uh, and I'm I'm interested to see how that starts to play out in spring training for him. There was some hope that hiring Mickey Calloway would help with pitcher usage and pitcher health since he was former pitching coach. And there were times last season when it seemed like he fell prey to whatever communication issues seemed to pervade the Mets organization. You recently wrote a story about how he reflected on his rookie season as a manager and is maybe prepared to make some changes. Is he doing anything differently in camp or do you know what he is hoping to do differently? this season? Well, I think the the first thing is that they have a, a veteran bench coach in Jim Riggleman next to him. Uh, you know, nothing against Gary DeSarcina, who was Callaway's bench coach last year, but that was only DeSarcina's second season as a bench coach in the major leagues, and it was his first in the National League. Callaway had never been a bench coach, uh, had never been in the National League. So I think there were some elements of National League strategy that caught up to them, and then most infamously, they, they turned in the lineup wrong one day. And you know, when you turn in the lineup wrong one day, you really want to win that game, and you certainly don't want to lose it by one on a walk-off <laughs> home run, which is what happened to them on a getaway day in Cincinnati. So it was, it was kind of, uh, that, that, that really stood, that, that was a good symbol for how things went wrong at times. You know, Callaway has talked about being a bit more conventional this year. Last year, he talked about going into the season, how he wanted to use Jerry's Familia as the closer in kind of more creative spots and bring him in before the ninth inning, the way the Indians had uh, with Andrew Miller. The Mets had in A.J. Ramos and Anthony Swarzak guys they thought could close behind Familia if they brought him in in the seventh or eighth. Uh, then Swarzak was hurt. Ramos was ineffective. Familia was basically just your traditional ninth inning closer. Now that they brought in Edwin Diaz, they're going to use him basically as just the ninth inning guy. Uh, Familia will be setup man, so he'll, he'll be in that role uh, coming in a little earlier. Uh, and, and Callaway, you know, one of his, his more notable moves last year was pulling a pitcher to bring in Jerry Blevins before a left-handed pinch hitter was announced in Odubel Herrera uh, so that the Phillies could then pull Herrera back. And, and Callaway has defended this decision that he did it the way he wanted to, but has, he joked the other day that, you know, he was defending this decision to, to wriggle in and it was taking him four or five minutes to defend <laughs> to defend it. Uh, that's probably too long <laughs> to get into uh, a simple decision like that. So I think he's going to, he's going to pull back from some of those thoughts. Uh, what's interesting is the Mets have kind of the, more versatile roster that allows you to deploy it creatively. Uh, they've got some guys who play different positions. Uh, they've got more pieces in that bullpen, at least theoretically, than they did last year practically uh, to, to use it interestingly. Uh, so I, I think there are, you know, and, and the, the work that Callaway did with the pitching staff goes maybe unnoticed that DeGrom did, you know, between Callaway and Dave Island, they got DeGrom to have that season last year. Uh, they got uh, Stephen Matz to get through an entire season healthy uh, and, and, pretty consistent. Uh, and they got Wheeler to have uh, a season that really nobody saw coming, especially in the second half. So I think they did good work with the starting staff for the most part. 
uh, and that kind of got uh, swallowed up by the, the season as a whole being a disappointment and Callaway having some, some strategical issues here and there. I was looking at the Mets not too long ago, look, just looking at their their entire pitching staff from 2018, and I noticed that they, they'd they followed through on their, their spring training threats. Dave Island came in as the new pitching coach last year and said, you know what, we want to establish the inside fastball. And you can say whatever you want in spring training. Usually it doesn't come true, but the Mets went out and they established the inside fastball. They threw more inside fastballs than any other team. They had a huge change from the way that they pitched in 2017. Of course, the structure of the pitching staff was also different. They had different players get hurt. Some players stay healthy. But by and large, still, the players who were held over from 2017 moved inside with their fastballs an awful lot. It was one of the reasons that Zach Wheeler was so good. It was one of the reasons Jacob deGrom was so good. Having now seen that for a season, and presumably they're going to try to do it again next year, how much of the Mets pitching success in 2018 do you attribute to that change in strategy? And how much was just, well, these are these are good pitchers, and so they're they're getting results now that they're actually pitching healthy? Well, I, I remember late last season talking to Wheeler about that. And that was, that was a really good story, by the way. I'm going to have to try to copy some version of it uh, in the coming <laughs> weeks in spring training. Uh, I was talking to Wheeler about it, about his season as a whole, and he mentioned how like being able to pitch inside just gave him kind of a larger margin of error. You know, he, he was unhappy with his slider for most of last year, which used to be his go-to bread and butter pitch. And he said, you know, there's times like, because I pitch inside now, I can throw an indifferent backdoor slider to a guy and it's still pay, like, he still takes it on the, the other side of the plate because he's, because I've established the inside part of the plate. Uh, so I, I think that's, you know, just throwing that other thing in a guy's mind that you can own that part of the plate too inside. Uh, allows you to get away with some pitches that maybe aren't as good as they should be uh, elsewhere on the plate. So it was that rare instance of a, a new pitching coach or a new coach coming in and saying, yes, this is our priority. This is our point of emphasis. Uh, and it actually followed through over the course of the entire season. I'm so used to guys coming in. I remember John Lester coming in and saying he really wanted to work on his pickoff move. And this is in like 2012 <laughs> or 2013. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, so I, I think... You know, you're so used to those things not coming to fruition uh, that it was it was really a, a surprise over the course of the season that, yeah, like the Mets emphasized it, Island emphasized it, and they went out and they did it. Uh, and it was one it was one of the main reasons we saw such a leap from Wheeler and DeGrom, as you mentioned. This is sort of our service time manipulation preview episode with top prospects working on their defense. We'll be talking about Vlad Guerrero Jr. a little later, but you actually wrote about Peter Alonso and how he is literally working on his defense. So how is he going about that and what role might he play for the Mets this season and and when? Yeah, it was funny. I was on a a Mets podcast yesterday and they asked me about Alonso uh, and I said, you know, I've been out there, I've seen him on the backfield to take an infield. I haven't seen him make a, a mistake yet. He's been, he looks perfectly capable of being a major league first baseman. And then I walked out there this, this morning and I saw him make three or four mistakes in about 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's, it's still a work in progress, clearly. You know, he worked a lot over the offseason with one of his high school buddies, Stephen Negron, who used to be a, a, a Padres infield instructor. And, you know, Alonzo is a guy who, you know, from day one, we've heard about this tremendous work ethic he has, uh, that he's going to put in the work to get better defensively. It's just a matter of whether he can do it. Uh, I, I think, you know, first base is a position that we, you know, we go back to the money ball quote, it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, you need certain athleticism to handle it. And I'm not sure where he is on that scale yet. We haven't seen enough of him kind of in-game action. Uh, and I've heard enough questions from scouts to think there are legitimate concerns about his uh, defense at first base. Uh, at the same time, uh, what he can do with the bat uh, is is a thing the Mets don't have right now. With Cespedes out, they don't have a right-handed power hitter in the middle of the order 
You're looking at a lineup, uh, if the season started today, where Wilson Ramos is probably uh, your cleanup hitter as a right-handed bat, and then you've got Todd Frazier behind him. Frazier would be the presumptive opening day starter at first base uh, if they decide not to go with Alonzo. I, I think he'll be up at some point this season. You know, there's the service time considerations at the start of the year. I, I think in a tight division, you can make a strong case that if Alonzo, if the defense is good enough uh, to get by at this point, then you should just start the season with him uh, on opening day. Uh, there's no reason to think about 2025 free agency and a, a tight National League East and what he can add to the lineup. So I think he's going to play a major role in their season. I think he'll he'll work enough to get the defense passable. At least this is a team that, you know, especially under Sandy Alderson, did not care very much about its defense. It played Drupal Cabrera at shortstop for several years. It played him on second base last year for a while. Uh, you know, it's played Cespedes in center field uh, in the World Series. It's, it's you know, the, the Mets have not, prioritize defense for so long that it would be i know it's a new regime now and they've talked a lot about prioritizing the defensive side of things but we just mentioned how you know brandon nimmo the guy they didn't want to play center field is probably going to play center field so it'd be a weird change of pace if they decided uh you know oh this guy's defense is is untenable for us at first base at least for two weeks You've already mentioned that the Mets clearly were prioritizing getting good in, in 2019, and, and what happens after that is going to, I don't know, it's less foreseeable. But if the Mets want to hang around and be in the race for it for a while, they're going to need their young players on the roster to get good, stay good, you know, all the usual stuff. And one of the critical players, one of the players I have right now who doesn't have much depth behind him, aside from a Danny Echeverria, I guess, is Ahmed Rosario. And Rosario is now 23 years old, and relative to his initial cup of coffee in 2017, he was... He was better in 2018. His walks went up, his strikeouts went down, his his hitting improved, etc. But he didn't grade out well defensively. He still chases a lot of pitches out of the zone. He still makes a below average rate of contact. Doesn't really star in terms of exit velocity. He's still very young. He's one of the fastest players in the game. But I guess this is a two-part question. One, is Ahmed Rosario good? And two, how much upside is there in him moving forward? Define good in this context? I mean, <laughs> uh, I think... Is he a good major league shortstop in 2019? I'm not sure if he's there yet. Uh, he was, you know, he was a much better player uh, in the second half of 2018, especially I think the last six weeks or so. Uh, he looked more and more like the guy uh, who was, you know, one of the, the top two or three prospects in baseball uh, when he was called up. Uh, he's a guy who can impact the game in a lot of different ways, hit for power, hit for average you think, can run. Uh, can can feel that shortstop reasonably well. Uh, they think he's got some room to grow there, but they're, they're pretty confident that he'll be an above-average defensive shortstop relatively soon, and I, I, I don't see a reason to doubt that confidence yet. Uh, I think offensively, he still does, you know, the, the plate discipline is worrisome. I, I looked, and I haven't written this yet, but I looked recently at kind of shortstops his age who have had the kind of, you know, starts to their career that he had, uh, and there's some really good ones in there. There's some some Hall of Fame guys uh, like Robin Yount uh, in there. But there's also a group of guys who did not have good plate discipline and weren't in the major leagues three years after that point. Uh, so it'll be interesting to me to see whether he can carry over what he did late in the season when he was hitting leadoff, where the Mets wanted to get him as many at-bats as possible, wanted him to see uh, as many kind of fastballs as possible uh, and, and not have to deal with the challenges that hitting eighth in a National League lineup present to you, how he'll carry that over to a season in which he is going to be hitting eighth in front of the pitcher, uh, and we'll probably see a lot of sliders uh, that start in the zone and finish off of it, and whether he can lay off those pitches consistently the way he did at the end of the season. I think there's plenty of room for growth if you're going to pick a breakout player on this roster. 
he's the one. And if he does, it really changes the way you look at them competitively. But I don't know right at this point that I can project that actually happening. So this is a season preview podcast. So we are primarily talking about players who are going to appear at the major league level for the Mets in 2019. Given that, should we be asking a Tim Tebow question <laughs> other than this Tim Tebow question that I guess I just asked? You know, if, if he hadn't broken his hamate bone last July, he probably would have been up in September. There was kind of a, a perfect storm of, of uh, events that con- conspired to get him in position where a September call-up was going to make sense for the Mets last year, and that they didn't have a lot of outfield depth to begin with. Lagares and Cespedes were out for the season. The team was not competitive, uh, and you could, you could justify calling him up because of all of those reasons, uh, at least in September. Now you've got a roster where you've got a bit more outfield depth. They, they added, you know, Lagares is back. You added Broxton. You have McNeil as a guy you consider in the outfield. Uh, they've signed, you know, the Mets last year, their, their upper level minors depth, uh, was really poor kind of across the board, but especially in the outfield where you had, you know, they had to sign Austin Jackson off the scrap heap, uh, in August to play center field pretty much on a regular basis. Uh, they played Matt Dendecker in the outfield. Jose Bautista started plenty of games for them last year. You know, their triple their A roster didn't have guys who were in the, the organization even in spring training uh, for much of the year. So this year they've got guys like Rajay Davis and Gregor Blanco and Reimer Liriano, who, you know, should there be injuries in the outfield, you can imagine them filling in for a time. Tebow will start the year in triple A in Syracuse. You know, his numbers in double A were not bad. He, he was on the all-star team. I have to think there were some other considerations in putting him on the all-star team, but he did have an OPS better than the Eastern League average. So that's a nice thing. So I, I think there's there's a chance he could appear at the major league level, but I think it would take a similar perfect storm of, of things happening, uh, injuries ahead of him, uh, some of those veterans on minor league deals opting out at various points in the season, uh, Cespedes not being able to come back at a certain point and kind of being ruled out for the year. Uh, maybe McNeil not taking to the outfield the same way he did and the same way they expect him to. And the Mets kind of falling out of it in September where bringing up a guy like Tebow is, is a viable thing for them to do. Well, my wife's from Syracuse and I go up there from time to time. So I guess that gives me something to do this summer. Go see Tim Tebow while I'm there. So <laughs> we have come to the final question. Give us your predicted win total for the New York Mets in 2019. You know, this is this is my ninth year covering baseball. And I think... My, my first year was the 2011 Red Sox, and I was pretty sure they were going to win 100 games. And ever since, I think every team I've covered, I've expected to win like 84 games. Uh, <laughs> and this team feels like the 84-ist of them all. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, I, I think there are ways to imagine them winning 90-plus. Uh, you know, every time I see this roster, I think, you know, you can't win with this hole on the roster. Then I remember that, the, you know, the Red Sox won 108 games uh, end the World Series with, you know, Mitch Moreland slash Steve Pierce at first, Brock Holt at second, uh, and Eduardo Nunez slash Rafael Devers at third. Like they, and nobody behind the plate. Like the Red Sox didn't have an infield last year and they won 119 games. Uh, so every time I want to say that this team is missing too many pieces, I think back to that there are holes on other rosters. Uh, but I, I worry too much about what they're going to get out of the rotation. Physically, they got 110 starts from the top four of DeGrom, Syndergaard, Matt, and Wheeler last year. That's more than you usually get from your top four starters. Uh, that's more than they've gotten from these guys, certainly, with their injury history. So I, I don't. I, I worry about the depth there. I worry about having your two big infield signings being in their 30s, uh, their mid to late 30s, and Canoa Lowry. Wilson Ramos has his own deal, deal with injuries. 
Even McNeil is a guy who had a, a long injury track record in the minor leagues. So I just they've, they've spent a lot of time this offseason trying to provide decent backup plans for if things go wrong physically. Uh, but there's only so much you can do in that regard. And I still worry that the Mets have had so many of their seasons defined by the injury bug that why not this one too? <laughs> so I, I'd say while, while there's reason for them, I think the ceiling on this team is higher than it was last year uh, and higher than it's been for a couple of years for the Mets. Uh, I, I don't necessarily see them hitting it. Every team has holes, but only one team has Jason Vargas in its starting rotation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You can follow Tim's coverage of the Mets all season long. You can also find him on Twitter at Tim Britton. Read him at The Athletic. Thank you very much, Tim. Oh, anytime. Thank you, guys. You can now leave your car. I don't know. I might just want to stay in here. (laughs) All right. We'll take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet to talk about the Blue Jays. All right, we are back and we are joined by a second Ben, Ben Nicholson-Smith, who is the baseball editor for Sportsnet and covers MLB and most relevant to our discussion today, the Blue Jays. Welcome back, Ben. Guys, thanks for having me back. It's always always fun to talk with you guys and, and join a podcast that I continue listening to uh, every time it comes in. Oh, well, thank you very much. You'll have less to listen to today unless you like listening to yourself. So I was just scanning the Blue Jays BP annual essay by Whitney McIntosh and one sentence she wrote in writing about last year's team, the Jays transformed from a normal baseball team to a conduit through which fans experienced waves of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. news. That is not any different today than it was back then. So is this mostly a, a positive thing for Blue Jays now, this sense of anticipation of Guerrero's arrival, or is it all tinged with the negativity of knowing that he hasn't been here and won't be here as soon as he should be? Because certainly on Twitter, for instance, you can't really talk about Vlad Guerrero without talking about the Blue Jays manipulating his service time. But do Blue Jays fans, are they just as worked up about it? Are they just as impatient to not have to wait a couple of weeks into the season to see the shining hope of the franchise? Yeah, I think there's a huge sense of excitement around Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, there should be. If you can't get excited about him, then what are you really doing as a baseball fan? Because this guy seems like the real deal by all accounts. Whether you look at the numbers, you read the scouting reports, you talk to people who have seen him, even watching him take batting practice is is pretty impressive. So I, I think that the excitement around him is really justified. And I'm personally really excited to watch him. I think it's going to be one of the most, well, it's going to be the most interesting thing on a team that otherwise doesn't have a ton going for it heading into 2019. So, of course, I mean, the manipulation of his service time, that's a, a problem and a bigger picture problem than, than just for the Blue Jays or just for Vlad Jr. But, uh, you know, I think that once we get to that point in mid-April, end of April, and he's actually up here every day, it's, it's going to be a reason to tune in or a reason to, to go to the ballpark every single night. We're going to be hearing, and we already are hearing, about his defense and how he has to work on it before he can come up. And, of course, the way he hits, he could be a bad defender and still very much be a major leaguer. But how much is defense a concern, or how much could he stand to be better at that? It seems like there's room for improvement there. And you know, how could there, how could there not be when, when you're talking about a guy who, at this point, as we're talking now, is still 19 years old, 
And third base is a pretty tough position. It's, it's a demanding position. When you look at, at Vlad playing defense, he's got some athleticism. And once he gets running to full speed, he can actually move pretty well. But I think it's that first step, that lateral quickness on a ground ball going down the third baseline or in between the five, six hole, is he going to be able to get to those balls? And so the Blue Jays are obviously working on him with the understanding, and they would probably never say this, but realistically, is he ever going to be, you know, an above average third baseman in the major leagues? I don't know, but if they can even get him to average where he can handle the position and and not throw the ball away, make the routine play, I think that there's obviously huge, huge upside in having him even be able to do that. So I, I think that's, that's the the process of, of trying to get him to be better. But realistically, I think we would all agree he's a major league player right now, regardless of how well he's fielding. So it's uh, you look at the Blue Jays and everybody gets excited about Guerrero. Of course, the number two prospect on the team is Bo Bichette. He's on his own course toward the major leagues. But there's somebody who's already in the major leagues. He had a, a pretty successful cup of coffee. And for all the talk about how maybe the Jays right now are unimpressive, don't have a whole lot going for them, they do have Danny Jansen. So they traded Russell Martin not too long ago because he was out of a job. Danny Jansen, as he merged behind the plate, seemed like health and some contact lenses helped him toward a 2017 breakout in the minors. He carried that over into 2018 and last year in 95 Major League Plate appearances. He had a 115 WRC+. So I don't know that much about Jansen as an all-around player. I know his defense is, you know, playable, but... How much do you, how much did the Blue Jays expect from Jansen in this is his first full major league season? I think expectations are pretty high. Even when you look at what's required of a catcher on an everyday basis in the major leagues, in the course of a first full season, he's going to have to get to know this pitching staff, includes a lot of newcomers and some holdovers like Stroman and Sanchez. That's a lot of work in itself to try to understand these pitchers, what's motivating them what works for them in a certain count, what pitches they're most comfortable with. So he's got that to figure out. He's got a whole league of pitchers that he's got a little bit of familiarity with, but still he's going to have to learn the the various pitchers from the American League East and extending throughout baseball. Then he's got to continue the, the offensive development that we've seen in the last couple of seasons, put the work in behind the scenes to continue on that batting eye, continue uh, developing what's a pretty intriguing power profile for a catcher someone who might be able to hit 20 home runs and and add in some doubles and really be an above average offensive catcher in the big leagues. So he's got a lot to work on. I think there are a ton of challenges that he's facing new coaching staff, six month season after, you know, last year, really that being the first time that he had played deep into September. So there are a ton of challenges that he's facing, but by all accounts, he's ready for it or as ready as any rookie catcher ever can be for the challenge of, of taking all of that on. And what we saw last year was pretty encouraging because offensively, he could really handle it. Defensively, I, I would agree, Jeff, that you know he's, he's someone who doesn't really have that whole package defensively yet put together. Um, and maybe there's some work on receiving and pitch blocking that, that will come later in his career. But still, you look at what he's able to do, and there's lots of reason for the Blue Jays to be encouraged. I thought I was finished asking Vlad questions, and I was going to ask a Marcus Stroman question, but this turns into a question about both of them because Marcus Stroman recently made some comments about Guerrero and how the Blue Jays would like Guerrero to be on the team, and they want the front office to put the best team on the field possible. Have any other players been outspoken about that? Is that something that the Blue Jays themselves are as upset about as fans are? 
Well, Stroman's the only one who said it publicly, and he's obviously never afraid to to say what's what's on his mind. And I think if you're if you're the Blue Jays, that comment is probably the the least of your worries when it came to the, the comments that Stroman made to the media on Sunday. Because if you're running a team, you probably want your players to want to play alongside the absolute best product possible. And so that's that's competitiveness that I, I think any front office could understand or any coaching staff could understand. The, the interesting thing with Stroman is he was really clearly frustrated with the fact that the Blue Jays, uh, he says, have not made him an extension offer. And this is something that isn't sitting well with him right now. So that's a really interesting dynamic for a team that only has Stroman and Sanchez under control for two more seasons. So now they have to ask the question, do they want to extend these guys, knowing that they both battled health issues and had down years last year? Or, in my opinion, the more likely situation do they end up trading them if they have a relatively good first half? I wanted to ask about Sanchez, and I'm just going to cover his last two years looking at stints on the injured list. I'm going to uh, read off from here's Pro Sports Transactions. 10-day injured list with a blister on his right middle finger. 10-day injured list with a split right fingernail. 10-day injured list with a lacerated right middle finger. 10-day injured list with a blister on the right middle finger. Transferred to the 60-day injured list with a blister on the right middle finger. 10-day injured list with a bruised right index finger and 60-day injured list with a bruised right index finger. And then in September, finger injury, parentheses, out for season. Been a bad couple years for Aaron Sanchez's fingers. And it's interesting, you said, as you mentioned, that both he and Stroman are just two years away from being out of team control, but it still feels like at least... For me, with both of them, and especially Sanchez, like he's still almost a complete unknown because we just haven't seen him healthy since 2016. So I guess, what is the state of Aaron Sanchez's fingers in spring training right now? <laughs> yeah, it's been such a rough couple of years. And even hearing you read off those those injuries, it's just such a reminder of how much time he's missed and how difficult um, it's been for, for both him and the Blue Jays. I think at this point, he's throwing and throwing bullpens and basically on schedule, maybe a little bit behind schedule, but basically where he would expect to be. But that being said, this was also the case last year. He was able to make it through spring training, healthy and, and start the season, um, but ended up encountering injuries later in the year. He got his fingers stuck in a suitcase that led to all kinds of trouble. And he just never really got back to full strength after that. So at this point, there's hope from Sanchez himself, of course, that he can restore uh, himself. And the Blue Jays are saying the right things that they think that he can he can be who he once was when he led the American League in ERA a couple of years ago. But honestly, I don't think anyone really knows. And as much as the Blue Jays would like certainty, there's just not a lot of certainty from Aaron Sanchez. And I think that extends really throughout the rotation. You look at this group, Clayton Richard, Matt Shoemaker, these guys were injured last year. Marcus Stroman was injured last year. Ryan Barucki, who's probably going to be the fifth guy in that rotation, was a rookie. And, and as much as he impressed last season, this is not someone who has an extended track record. So as far as the question marks on this team, I, I think the rotation is, is one of the biggest ones. And Aaron Sanchez is a pretty big reason for that. One of the bright spots for this team last year, particularly in the second half of the season, was Lord Scuriel, who was great from July on. What are the expectations for him, and what impact does that have on Devon Travis? Yeah, those two are, are definitely in the mix for playing time up the middle on this team. And I think as for Guriel, he's someone who the Blue Jays would love to see continue showing 
really good basketball skills and, and maybe someone who can hit 280 or 290 in the big leagues. I mean, that would be great, but he hasn't shown a ton of patience when it comes to drawing walks. And so for him to be a good offensive player, he might have to hit 280 or 290 to, to really have that on-base percentage up there. So he's someone who definitely has the skill set. Can he become their version of Marwin Gonzalez? I mean, I think that would be the ideal. But at the same time, he might be more of a, a guy who subs in at, at you know multiple positions without having quite that same offensive impact. So this is a year for him where he's going to have the opportunity because ultimately he can play enough positions that if he's hitting, he's going to find his way into the lineup. And that's what the Blue Jays would like to see. As for Travis, I think when you look at a guy who has spent so much time on the disabled list in the past few seasons, and again, someone who's just a couple of years, a few years away in his case from free agency, I don't think he would be viewed as a core piece on this team anymore. You know, a really, really well-liked guy and someone who has produced and has uh, hit at the major league level before, but I don't think the Blue Jays are counting on him. And I think probably even less so than Guriel with, with Travis. But anything they get from, from him, I think they would probably consider a bonus. So this is hardly the most important thing that's going to happen with the 2019 Blue Jays, I think. I hope. Anyway, five days ago, Elvis Luciano turned 19 years old, and the Blue Jays took him with the 10th overall pick in last year's Rule 5 draft. And Luciano, he's obviously very young. He was available because of a loophole. He's never pitched above rookie ball when he's pitched in rookie ball. He's been pretty good. But he's also been extremely young. Clearly, not anyone who the Diamondbacks or Royals were rushing through the system. But I know it's early. It's only February 20th as we're recording this. But do you think Elvis Luciano is actually going to make this team? I definitely don't think so. And I, I haven't seen him. I'm still in Toronto as we record this. I'll be heading down there next week. And you know, maybe I'll, I'll hear and see the, the reasons why the Blue Jays were, were intrigued enough to take him in the Rule 5. But, I mean, this, this is a guy who's so young, right? Like, as you said just turned 19. He was born in the year 2000, which I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around. He's just so, so young. And I, I think, you know, I'd put it at 10% chance he makes the team and they see what happens with him. And I think, you know, in that 10% where he impresses enough to make a team, they actually have something. And wow, Elvis Luciano is someone who is going to be a piece on this Blue Jays team. But I think much more likely when you look at, at just 19-year-old pitchers in general, very few of them are ready for the major leagues. And so I think the overwhelming likelihood would be that they take a look and maybe he's intriguing, but at the end of spring training or, or maybe even by the middle of spring training, they say, you know what, we can do better and, and we're going to go with someone more experienced. So as the Blue Jays were deciding how to move on from John Gibbons in the managerial role, they did interview some people who followed the the sort of mold of recently retired young player that other teams have gravitated toward lately. But they ended up hiring Charlie Montoyo, a little bit older, the Rays bench coach. He had been a, a colleague of Rocco Baldelli, who was also someone who was in consideration for the Blue Jays job before he was hired elsewhere. So what made them go with Montoyo? And what do you think the main changes from Gibbons and from Gibbons' staff will be? Yeah, huge change. I mean, John Gibbons was such a such a character and had so much personality that I think anyone coming in after him would, would be a huge change and a, and a big uh, big shift for the players, certainly for, from a media standpoint. No one will be quite like Gibby um, when it comes to those daily interactions. But I think that after the season, they started you know, to, to 
use a, I guess, a cliche, they casted a wide net and started looking through all these different candidates, talked seriously with some of them, including David Bell and Rocco Baldelli. And then midway through this process, they realized that Charlie Montoyo was a name that kept coming up. And that was one of the names that Rocco Baldelli mentioned. Uh, it was a, a name that they had heard from Eric Neander of the Raids. And they started to get more intrigued. So they called up Montoyo and then started talking to him and things moved really quickly. Within five days, he was here in Toronto being introduced at a press conference. And that was really the first chance that I got to get a sense of what he's like and to interact with him. And it seems like he's a really likable guy, really positive guy in his own right. And I mean, that kind of makes sense because, you know, first spring training, it's a time of optimism to begin with. And if it's your first one with a new team and your first one as a major league manager, it stands to reason that probably he's going to veer positive as opposed to super grouchy. But I think it's genuine. It seems like he's genuinely a, a really uh, a positive guy. He's been through a lot with, uh, you know, in his own personal life, grinding his way through the minor leagues. He's got a son who's battled some health issues and is now doing better. And you know, it, it seems as though that adversity is, has really given him a lot of perspective that he brings to the role of manager. So he's a different guy. I think that even if he's not the one who is coming up with these, you know, radical ideas for, say, the opener or new analytical ideas or, or algorithms, he's very much open to those. So if someone else presents it to him, whether it's a bullpen coach or a bench coach or a front office guy or a player, my understanding is that he's really open to that kind of thing in a way that, you know, John Gibbons probably wasn't going to be at the cutting edge. Not to say that Gibby would ever oppose that stuff, because I think that's a little bit unfair too. He used some openness, but he might not have sought it out in the same way that Montoyo seems to, to really be open to all kinds of different ideas. Looking over the Blue Jays' current 40-man roster and having tweaked the Blue Jays' depth charts at Fangraphs, I'm struck by uh, by the situation in the outfield. I'm just going to list off all eight outfielders currently on the Blue Jays' 40-man roster, starting in alphabetical order. Anthony Alford, Jonathan Davis, Randall Grichuk, Teoscar Hernandez, Billy McKinney, Kevin Pillar, Dalton Pompey, and Dwight Smith Jr. Seems like Pillar pretty much locked into a spot in center field. Uh, Grichuk locked into a spot. It looks like Teoscar Hernandez and Billy McKinney are going to kind of platoon or figure out a job share situation in the other corner. But can you, I don't know, maybe it's too much to ask in one question, but can you address what the futures are of these eight players, or at least the four who I've left out who don't have current starting roles? Because there's a lot of personnel depth who don't seem to have clear paths toward meaningful playing time anytime in the near future. And the youngest of all of these players is still going to turn 25 in the season ahead. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I would say, you know, as a big picture overarching theme for this team, this whole season is going to be about sifting through guys who are going to help in the next contending Blue Jays team and the guys who can't. And I think the outfield is really a perfect example of that, where you have some youth, you have some intriguing players. And honestly, you have some guys that if they don't have a good season or even don't have a good spring, then it might be time for their tenure with the Blue Jays to end. So to, to go player by player, I, I do think with the Major League outfield, you got it right, where Pilar and Grichuk will start in center and right, respectively. And then you have Teoscar and Billy, Billy McKinney likely to be getting most of the at-bats in left field. So that leaves four guys. Dalton Pompey is a guy who's out of options right now and just hasn't hit enough and has dealt with too many injuries. I, I think that at the end of spring training, he'll be off the roster and with somebody else. So that's not locked in stone. I think that there's a possibility where he would really impress, but the likelihood, in my opinion, would be that he's somewhere else. 
Then you have Dwight Smith Jr. He's a serviceable kind of fourth outfielder type, and he has hit to his credit in the major leagues. I think he goes to AAA and is there as depth for when someone gets injured and they need an outfielder. Similar would be Anthony Alford, but I think with Alford, there's still a glimmer of hope that he could be something as an everyday major leaguer. You look at the skill set, he was really highly regarded as an amateur, obviously played football coming up. And so his development has kind of been delayed to where you look at the age and you look at where he's at baseball-wise. Those things haven't necessarily matched up. But he's getting to the point, too, where it, it's getting to a make-or-break point for him. And Davis, I would put into a depth category, similar to Smith Jr., as someone who's probably not got a ton of upside but could help fill in gaps. So the Blue Jays' payroll is down significantly from last season. I think they entered last year right around the 160 million mark, and now they're just barely over a hundred. So they have dropped. Seems like about 60 million year over year. I know that Mark Shapiro has said some things about how they will be willing to spend again when the time is right and so forth. But are there things that they should have done this offseason? Do you think the time was right for any moves that they didn't make? And what have they said about that payroll decline? Honestly, I think they should have signed Bryce Harper. Or I think they should sign Bryce Still Harper. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you're looking at, at a player who would be a perfect left-handed complement to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., somebody who's still 26 years old. We were just talking about those outfielders. Bryce Harper's younger than a lot of those guys. I mean, I, I think that he's uh, a really good fit. But Mark Shapiro said, even before the offseason began, he stated explicitly that the Blue Jays were not going to be signing Bryce Harper. So that is, we're putting that aside. I, I think as far as other free agents that they could have gone after, you know, I, I don't think that there were guys who, you know, I, I thought that, you know, they could have gone after maybe a, a Garrett Richards or, or someone who has a couple couple years and you know would have some upside. I thought Kikuchi would have been a good target for them, and they were in on him before he ended up going to the Mariners. But yeah, like you say, Ben, I mean, this payroll is going down a ton. And for fans, my sense is that this creates a big question for, for the Blue Jays fan base because we've seen payroll be pretty high in the last few years um, as the Blue Jays were a good team and then still trying to be a good team for a couple years after those runs to the ALCS. And now it's dropping a lot. So at some point, the Blue Jays are going to, or they say they're going to invest into this young core that they've built. But I do think that there's some, some element of, you know, fans really wanting to see that, to believe that, because you look around baseball, obviously, as you guys know, there's, there's been so much hesitation to spend on, on free agents. And I think there's a certain aspect of fear on the part of Blue Jays fans that this might not actually happen to the extent that Mark Shapiro is suggesting it will. Looking at the Blue Jays, it was last season that they traded away Roberto Osuna. I don't know exactly what their internal reasoning was, but the timing couldn't have been a coincidence. They didn't want anything to do with Osuna, so they traded him to the Astros and player they got back was a very, very differently troubled reliever in Ken Giles and Giles came over and he has been a very, very good reliever before, always had great strikeout numbers, always had pretty good overall peripherals, but his ERAs have just kind of spiraled with the Astros. He had an ERA of 4.99 and then he came to the Blue Jays, had a couple blowups, was mostly a competent reliever. Looks like he is lined up to be the Blue Jays' closer moving forward. Of course, he doesn't have that much team control left. It's not like he's a long-term piece for the Blue Jays, but how do the Blue Jays feel about Ken Giles, and do they feel like 
I don't know. This is going to get maybe deeper than we're supposed to on the podcast, but do they feel like they can actually harness his, let's call it, closer mentality so that he can be a reliable reliever for this team? I think there's some optimism that they can, and you would think that closing for a team that's probably not going to be near the top of the standings would help him just restore some of that confidence after a really you know troubling 18 months when you look back to those blowing saves in 2017 and obviously some conflict with A.J. Hinch in Houston, punching himself in the face. That's a rough year. So I think it's only understandable that an offseason away from the Diamond would probably help. And he said that he's been working on some things mentally, including with his wife, who's a, a former softball player at a, at a very high level, and just trying to wrap his head around some of the some of those things that, that he encountered in the course of the past couple seasons. Because stuff-wise, you look at the fastball, you look at the slider, this is the profile of an elite major league reliever. And I think there's a pretty good chance that by the time we get to midseason, Ken Giles is the most trade chip on the Blue Jays and brings back the biggest return at the trade deadline. When you look at the history of you know what teams are looking for in July, they tend to be looking for relievers with dominant strikeout, shutdown stuff. And that's what Giles has. So to me, that's the best case scenario for the Blue Jays is they flip him and they acquire someone who's around for more than just a couple of years. Which prospect who is a son of a former major leaguer is most exciting in the non-Guerrero department, whether we're talking about Biggio or Bichette, or if you want to shout out some prospect who is not related to a former major leaguer, I'd take that too. Yeah, I'll go with Bichette. I mean, it's, it's probably the easy answer here, but it, you know, the Blue Jays, whenever they're talking about Vladimir Guerrero Jr., they make a point of saying that it has to be more than one player. And that's true, of course. I mean, whether you're looking at the Red Sox or the Astros, any of these teams, the Cubs, when you develop a young core, it can't just be that one player. So I believe that as much as Guerrero is going to have to to be the driving force in all likelihood, they will need more than just one superstar. And I think Bichette, more so than Biggio, more so than, than really anyone in the farm system, has a shot to be that 1A to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And if Bichette can realize his potential, the Blue Jays would have a shortstop who can go out there and hit for a pretty high average, have some power, you know, potentially be a four-win player on a regular basis. And if that's the case, then it becomes that much easier to fill in gaps around him. And then you're not relying on Lourdes Gurriel Jr. to, to carry your lineup. And Kevin Biggio can be someone who's maybe a bit more of a utility player or, or a nice everyday player who hits seventh in your lineup as opposed to someone that you're relying on. All right. Well, we uh, we were just looking at the Blue Jays' depth chart before we started talking to you and trying to remind ourselves who was actually on the Blue Jays because this team is just so dwarfed by Vlad right now. I don't know if there's anyone else that we have not touched on who you think will play a prominent role for this team in 2019 or any obvious area where they might actually upgrade if if midseason upgrades are, are something that could happen. Is there any under-the-radar Blue Jays story that is just getting dwarfed in the Guerrero craze? Yeah, I, I think that Guerrero rightfully is at the, at the forefront of any discussion surrounding this team. I do think that as much as there's you know a little bit of maybe pessimism surrounding this, this season and, and especially the, the beginning of the season where Guerrero is going to be playing for the Buffalo Bisons as opposed to the Toronto Blue Jays. I do think that in a big picture sense, this should be, I mean, it has to be a year where the Blue Jays see some of these guys arrive and start to actually emerge as major league contributors. And as you said, 
off the top. I mean, last year, so much of the, the excitement around the team, to the extent that it even existed, was checking the box scores for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. And so hopefully this year, that actually arrives in Toronto and you can actually be watching it take place on the field as opposed to checking and, and refreshing MILB.com to see exactly what these prospects are doing. All right. So give us your prediction for a 2019 Blue Jays win total. Well, last year they won 73. I think pretty similar situation this year. They'll be somewhere in the 70s, I think. So I'll go with 75. Just keep it in the middle. But I could see it going basically anywhere in the 70s for, for 2019. All right. Well, you can find Ben's work at Sportsnet. You can listen to him weekly on the At The Letters podcast. And you can find him on Twitter at B. Nicholson Smith. Ben, thank you very much and enjoy spring training. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. By the way, if you're wondering when Ben thinks Vlad will actually show up, he has helpfully written an FAQ about that. Evidently, he has been asked that question just a few times, so I will read from his piece here. So when can the Blue Jays safely call Guerrero Jr. up? The 2019 season will last 186 days. Anything more than 171 days of service time, and Guerrero Jr. gets a full year of big league time in 2019, that means he has to spend at least 15 days in the minors, because 186 minus 171 equals 15. The regular season includes four days in March, add in 11 days in April, and Guerrero Jr. would miss the requisite 15. That means the soonest Guerrero Jr. could safely debut is Friday, April 12th, a home game against the Rays. So when will they call him up? Just because the Blue Jays can call Guerrero Jr. up on April 12th doesn't mean you should buy those tickets just yet. In fact, I expect team decision makers to wait at least a few days longer than they technically have to. The Cubs manipulation of Chris Bryant's service time was a little too transparent, and it's perhaps not a coincidence that the MLBPA launched a grievance after Bryant fell one day short of a year's service. Chances are the Blue Jays would prefer to avoid that kind of headache even if it means waiting a few more days. Guerrero Jr.'s performance will factor in too. It might be hard to imagine after last year, but if he starts slowly with the Bisons, there would be no point in rushing him up to the majors. Alongside those considerations, there's also the question of where the Blue Jays debut Guerrero Jr. If he debuts at home on April 12th, he'll face additional media scrutiny and fan attention. Of course, that's nothing new for Guerrero Jr., and he'll have to handle the bright lights eventually. Still, there's no harm in easing him into the majors. Just one week later, the Blue Jays open a series in Oakland. Could that make for an easier transition? So that would be April 19th. That will do it for today. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up at Patreon and pledged some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going. Jason Peaks, Jeff Walter, Jay Case, Matt Bougie, and Xander Berg. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to effectively wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order the book I wrote with Travis Sochik about player development in baseball, The MVP Machine, coming out late this spring. And we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Let's go out when the sun goes down Let's wrestle this city to the ground We'll go out, we'll take no prisoners We look like a million dollars
was it you guys who were making the point that the Vera Ben signing seemed like a very Carson move? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I have no, I have no idea, idea that's actually, that's actually true, true, but definitely, definitely it felt like it. Yeah, when you guys said that, I was like, that that definitely feels like a Carson Sestouli move. On the other hand, the other if Carson, hand, Carson is already making minor league signings, signings like three months into the job, then I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like they like want him to be a big part of the front office though. Like I feel like he's actually there to do work and, and make moves. So I, I bet I bet that he's got that kind of sway already. I mean I would I hope mean, that would he's hope there, he's there to, do to do work because he certainly yeah. wasn't <laughs> <Yeah>. wasn't <laughs> <Yeah. Dangrass. laughs> <laughs>